0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 3rd, 2019. Still feels weird saying 2019. I, I think 2019 is going to be a year that never quite makes sense. I, the, the, the number, right? I don't know if the year is going to be good or bad. You know, 2018 for me kind of started off really crappy and finished really strong. It was a great year. First three months of it I could have done without. The rest of the year was pretty great. Um, so I don't. I'm not judging the year itself. I'm just saying the the number. It just doesn't sound right. 2019. You know, but here's the thing about 2019. When it's over, do you know what we'll finally have once again? A decade people can talk about with a single phrase or a single word. The 20s. The 20s. For 20 years, we've been lost. We had the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. A little older, the 60s and the 50s. Right? But what what do we... Since 2000, what have we had? The aughts? The teens? Ugh, it just wasn't a thing, you know. I know it has nothing to do with the show. It's just an observation. I just think 2019 sounds weird to me. I'm not like I that's an odd year at all. But it's like 2017 didn't feel that way. 2015 didn't feel that way. 2013 didn't. Feel, it's just weird. It's weird. You know what else was weird? Yesterday, when I produced yesterday's show, and I hit right click, create new folder. TSP-2019, that felt really weird, going into our 11th year here together at the Survival Podcast. So what do we got going on? You guys, if you've listened along, if you happen to a new listener, you're like, oh my God, what is going on here? Don't worry. Usually this is not how the show starts out. It's a pretty good show. We've been around over 10 years. There's over 200,000 people a day listen. I think if I started every show like this, maybe you guys wouldn't. Those that have been here... A while, You guys know that once in a while it's just a little bit of a goofy time in the beginning of the show. uh, Because that's what friends do. They goof off, talk about the weather, etc. By the way, the weather sucks. Oh, it sucks. I don't mean like, oh, poor me, the weather. I mean, it's it's a general observation. The weather here in the past couple days sucks. Like 32, 31, 29, 34 degrees. All bounced around in there. Highs for the days at like 36 degrees. This is North Texas. This is in Pennsylvania. And uh, rain, and then ice, and then rain, and then ice, and then sleet, and then rain. And everything's a mud hole, and it's cold, and it's miserable. The only people happy are not people, they're animals are the ducks. Anyway, what was I saying about not being a goof at the beginning of the show? Anyway, normally it's not like this, and long-term listeners of the show know that the show starts out on a Thursday. I tell you what we're going to be talking about from a standpoint of who called in. That's right, this is a call-in show. It's like old school radio where you pick up the phone, you mash some numbers, you call me and you ask me the question or tell me your opinion and I give you my opinion or my response to it. But since this is a podcast, if you call me and you're like, oh, I expect Jack to answer the phone, it's never going to happen. It's an automated system. You'll leave a voicemail. And here's the questions we've had today. Uh, improving the efficiency of a fireplace. I really like this question. Things have come a long time since, well, a long way since the last time we talked about it. Uh, a call from Jason, uh, in PA who says, uh, Maybe toy guns should go away when kids get real guns. And he has a couple of opinions uh, from other people that kind of substantiate that. I'll tell you what, I'm not going to say Jason's wrong, but I do disagree. You can disagree with somebody without thinking they're necessarily wrong. We'll talk about that a little bit too. How about the good, the bad, and the ugly on red flag laws? Red flag laws, if you've not been paying attention, are laws where like, I think my brother's going nuts, so I call the police and go, I think my brother's nuts. Cause I'm really qualified to make that assessment cause I have a degree in psych, but no, I don't, right? I, you know, I work for a living as a gas station attendant and I call uh, the police and say that my brother's nuts and he has guns and he could be a danger to himself and others and they come take his guns away. I'll talk to you about why it's, it's not even really a gun rights issue. It's, it's a completely screwed up thing because we don't need it. We don't need it. I'll, and I know, I'll explain why. Um, when we get there, I'll call it the good, the bad, and ugly on red flag laws. Another question on fermenting, and not uh, pickles or uh, or sauerkraut, but actually fermenting adult beverages, mead and wines and beers and whatnot. This time of year, it's cold. It's like 66 degrees in this guy's house. He's like, hey, you know, I'm supposed to be fermenting at like 75 degrees. What do I do? Uh, maybe nothing, but I'll tell you what you can do if you insist, Um, thoughts on venison bone broth and uh, I'll just say up front I ain't scared of CWD which is known as chronic wasting disease and it's the reason all of a sudden everybody's afraid to use the bones in uh, venison, elk, etc and I'll tell you why that really doesn't make any sense and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and I don't know that that's this guy's reason for asking the question he's more asking about he's got a friend he's got a friend that's a butcher good friend to have uh, that butchers deer and processes deer and uh, therefore, he might have a lot of availability of bones. And what I trust the source. And we'll talk about kind of the one thing I would want to know before I did that. Um, Homestead meat production and side hustles. We'll talk about that. And a question on 12 gauge mini shells. Do they serve any real purpose? 12 gauge mini shells. If you're not familiar with them, are these little short? I think they're like one and a half, one and a quarter, one and three quarters, something like that. A much a scaled down 12 gauge shell. The fact that I don't know the exact dimensions tells you I have not. Spent a lot of time paying attention to them, so you might imagine kind of the direction I'll go when I answer this. But I'll talk about the purpose they do serve and why it probably will not pertain to the average person, even the average prepper and homesteader and person that's concerned with home defense. We'll talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let me remind you one of the best ways you can help support this show and the work that we do including my often goofy introductions, is by becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade. Now, the way you do that, you go to survivalpodcast.com, you click on Members, and you can sign up there, and you see all the companies that do discounts. And if you use the discounts, over a year, you're probably going to get all your money back, and then some, which means you get to support the show. In the end, it doesn't really cost you anything. And, well, I really don't know what else to say. If you like the show and you want to support us and you want to do it where you can do it financially but you get your money back, MSB is the way to do that. And it's kind of like kind of a cool club to be in, too, being an MSB member. With that, let's go ahead and get to your first call. This is one that is on improving the efficiency of a fireplace. So,
1: Jack. What can I do to improve the heating ability of conventional brick fireplace? Thank you.
0: So the caller did mention the brick fireplace, and I don't know that he meant anything by that other than it's a brick fireplace. But I do want to kind of point out right from the beginning here that when people say that, sometimes they're thinking about, well, maybe I could put it in a different kind of fire brick that radiates heat or something like that, and, and really that's not going to help. The problem with fireplaces isn't what they're made out of. It's how they're designed. So fireplaces will to a degree, or three, heat the room that they're in. And they'll do this simply because, well, it's hot. Fires are hot. But the majority of the heat, because of how a fireplace is designed to work, a conventional fireplace I'm talking about here, goes up the chimney. Now, the, the downside of fireplaces is the little bit of gain that you get in heating a room, well, the fireplace is offset usually because adjoining rooms actually get colder. Now, I know that doesn't seem to make any sense. Like, like, do nothing is one thing. How do they make them colder? Mythbusters actually did an episode on this where they proved it with, you know, way extensive monitoring and uh, instruments like they do. And, and the basic synopsis was that, well, all that heat going up the fire has to take air with it. And air has to come somewhere. So it has to come from your house. So since your house is not a vacuum where you would die... There are There's some seepage of air from outside, and, and there's some air exchange, which is a good thing, honestly. And uh, so you're basically pulling cold air into the other rooms to feed the air that's necessary to go up the flume. That was what um, was Adam and Jamie said about it. and I may not be remembering exactly, but the whole point was your bedroom gets colder while your living room gets warmer, and that ain't good. Um, and it, that's, that's the problem. The heat goes up the chimney and away and out into the universe. And, uh, that energy will never be destroyed. It will change in form. It will change in location, though. Um, so what we need to do is we need to get some of that heat the heck out of your fireplace and into your house instead of up the chimney. There's, there's really only two good ways to do this without a complete major renovation. Um, the the old-school standard of this is basically a halfway point between a wood stove and a fireplace. They're called fireplace inserts, and they work really well. The problem is good-looking ones that work really well are kind of expensive, in the neighborhood of about $2,000. They're not that complicated to install, but they generally need some level of either professional or highly competent DIY installation. Uh, to help you with this, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to an episode of This Old House, about a three-minute uh, segment, where they actually install one, just so you can see how it's done and how they work and what they do. What these these offer you is nowhere near the efficiency of a true freestanding wood stove. Uh, but they do they do work really well in how much heat they will provide. It's really kind of like it's not a true fireplace anymore, though. Now it's like a wood stove that works halfway that you pay more than you would pay for a wood stove for in some instances. So you can see where it's not necessarily ideal. And when we had our house in Arkansas, it got very cold up there, and we did have a fireplace, and it was something I definitely considered doing. I also in my head came up with a product that I couldn't find. It may have existed, but I couldn't find one yet. Uh, that now exists and my thought was simply to build a fire grate that was hollow pipes and had a tube that came out one side and you hook up a little bitty blower fan to it because the slower the air goes through there probably actually the better a little 12 volt fan runs on an ac converter that way if you ever had to run it on a battery you could take a, you know, a little fan like that you could probably take a battery out of your lawn tractor and run it for a couple of days And so you'd have that, and then the other side of the tube would come out and blow heat out. And people, oh, my God, you're going to blow smoke in the house. No, no, it's a closed system. You blow it through the fire grate. The air is like a tube, like a straw. You blow in one end, the air comes out the other, and the air comes in from outside the fireplace, and it exits outside the fireplace, and the smoke and a lot of the heat still go up the fireplace. Well... I tried to find one because I was like, you know, this, this, and I was, I was very close to going down to a machine shop and having somebody build me one when I couldn't find one. This is quite a few years ago. And uh, then we decided to move back to Texas. And where we moved, we do not have a fireplace now. So I kind of gave up on it. They now have them and they call them fireplace heater blowers. And there's, there's quite a few different models. And I see them run you anywhere from 700, uh, sorry, 300 to 700 dollars. I've examined them, I've watched some videos on YouTube and, and, and stuff like that, and I have to believe that they would pay for themselves in a single season, just looking at how they work, and they're exactly what I had in mind. As to what is the best variety or brand, I don't know. Um, I found a company that sells a whole bunch of different ones. I have a link to like their category for them. Some of them are more for like a masonry-type fireplace, which... I think if you had that, you wouldn't need one, so I'm not really sure if it's trying to say it makes your fireplace like a masonry fireplace or it's designed to be masoned into a fireplace from the initial install instead of just, like, set in there and the rest of them are. So you might want to contact them for that. Um, the one that I would probably be most likely to try, now I would probably do full disclosure, if I actually had a fireplace, I might do a little more research before descending on this, but there's one called a Spitfire. And it uses really thick tubing and it has multiple holes coming out of the fireplace. So and it is the actual grate itself. And they make it in a four and six tube model. I think the four tube model is around five hundred bucks and the six tube model around seven hundred bucks. And the reason I would probably tend to go with the seven tube model is because most fire or the six tube model, most fireplaces are probably big enough that it would warrant that size of a grate. More than how much more it might do for you, because the the four one kind of seems kind of small unless you have a small you know some of the residential fireplaces they put in new builds and stuff like that now are pretty small, so maybe it would be because you need it to get it to fit. But this whole concept, I think, is the most cost effective bang for the buck that you could do in the world of fireplace you know improving efficiency without actually rebuilding it and changing it into something else. Um, one of them that they have on this website, I don't remember the name of the company now. Uh, let me look it up real quick. It is Woodland Direct is the place I found what kind of the best pricing on the models that are available mainstream mass market right now. But there's one that they have for $734. And I I don't, I don't send people to Amazon through my affiliate links just to make money. Right? I mean, I want you to be getting a good deal, or I don't recommend, I don't endorse, I don't review, etc. But that particular model is about $100 less on Amazon. So I'm not saying to buy that model, um, but it's the RCK heater blower, and it is on Amazon for less. I don't know if that's the cheapest you can find it online. But this one store that has the most options has it for more. So if you're going to get that one, if you decided on it, then it would make sense to buy it on Amazon. Uh, I have links to all that stuff. But that, I think, is the way to go for the majority of people that have a fireplace. And if you've used one of these, if you have a company building a product that you like, and you have any further input, I would love to hear about it. This is honestly something I would like to reach out to a company talk to them about sponsorship or MSB support or something. Uh, even just maybe get one of their subject matter experts on for an interview or even on because it might not be that in-depth for a segment on this. Um, if you've DIY'd one of your own, you have any video of it or anything, would love to see it. I do think probably the cheapest way to do this would be go to a local machine shop and have it made. I think one of the problems here... As a as a mass market product in the day and age of internet distribution, is it's bulky and it's heavy, and both of those mean it costs a lot of money to ship. Um, you know, so that's that I think is like the biggest holdup of somebody like starting up Billy Bob's, you know, heater blowers, which I think would be a great idea because I think it's an underserved market. It certainly could be done for less. But I think what they're doing to help mitigate and absorb some of the shipping, I think some of these products are a little overpriced um, to help absorb that cost of shipping so the shipping doesn't scare the hell out of you, even though it's still rather high. That's my guess. But that's the way I would go. If you guys have any other suggestions on improving fireplace heating, uh, I'd love to hear it. Uh, I think the biggest thing on a DIY is going to be the fan box and setting that up and making sure it's mated up and it's airtight and only blows through the tube and doesn't blow into the fire and create a bunch of flare-up and things like that. I don't think it's hard. I just think it's the most challenging thing. It's more challenging than building a pipe, because that's really what this is, is a pipe goes in the fireplace and out of the fireplace. And come to think about it, with the right material of pipe, you could probably just lay a pipe that, that had a couple 90s on it that laid down below the grate that the coals fall on, and one little thing and you're going to pump a ton of hot air out into uh, your your home. So, I think there's a lot of DIY ways to come at the DIYs to come at this. There is a video called The Great Fireplace Heater, G R A T E uh, and this is a DIY guy. It's also a guy that's been in the fireplace industry his whole life and he doesn't have any way you can buy it from or anything, but when I look at his channel, I think his idea was to be, you know, Billy Bob's, you know, fireplace blower heaters. And he probably ran into the logistical challenges here. Like, you need distribution for this product to work uh, in, into retail outlets, I think, uh, until we can matter energy transport things, and you won't need it anymore. Uh, just my thoughts. Love to hear your feedback, suggestions for companies to check out, things like that. Let's take another one.
1: Hi, Jack. Uh, Follow-up on getting a young child their first gun. Um, I, too, agree that, you know, Airsoft and even. you uh, Air rifles, you know, the pellet guns are great first guns, first rifles. Um, but something I've had two people tell me, and it makes a lot of sense. One was a very uh, respected instructor, and another was just uh, when I was a young child, an adult that was a gun owner, was when you bring a gun in the house for the child, then it's time to say goodbye to the toy one. I'm not saying you have to adopt this as policy, but I think every parent should at least consider saying, hey, you're now going to have an air rifle. You're now going to have a, you know, 22. The toy guns, it's time to say goodbye. Um, and part of that is not just for your child, but when other children come over so that there doesn't get that blurry line. Um, but just a safety consideration that when you bring the real Guns in for a child, it's time to say goodbye to the toy guns. And, you know, a lot of times they're okay with that because there is a certain crossing of a m- maturity boundary that, you know, a young man or woman likes to actually have to move from that. I was a child and I had childish things to now I'm growing up and now I'm having
0: grown up things. This is where I said, I'm not going to say you're wrong, but I disagree. Um, I don't disagree with your opinion that maybe people should consider it. I disagree with the conclusion. I think the sentiment uh, seems to make sense, but in general, when we rely on sentiment, we reach logical flaws. So let us let me explain where I see logical flaws in the thinking here. If I have a young man or, or woman that I am teaching about gun safety, and I feel that there could be a blurry line between their daisy air rifle Uh, their Marlin 22, uh, and their Nerf gun. They're not ready for a gun yet. They're not ready for a gun yet. And I think even we as gun owners, and I've seen it in this, in in my own, you know, following in the audience with events and stuff, have reached a point of hypersensitivity. I think we've let some of the anti gun crowd hysteria get into us and infect us to a degree. Um we had a kind of a gag at the last two workshops with airsoft guns and just springers, you know, one shot things where uh, we had a certain person who couldn't keep their mouth shut during presentations. And I tried everything. And so we decided to shoot him. He broke the rule and asked a question when he wasn't supposed to He got shot with an airsoft gun. Uh, and we had me and some of the guys that were you know, armed, if you want to call it that, to, to shoot him, shoot at each other once in a while. And uh, it made some people real uncomfortable, and you're pointing that gun at him. Well, of course I'm pointing at him. I'm going to shoot him. Well, you pointed at him didn't shoot him. Well, I threatened to shoot him because he didn't shut us all. And we're like, oh, my God. And, yeah, eye protection and all, but controlled situation wouldn't let kids do it. But, you know, kind of my point was you do realize there's entire leagues with tens of thousands of members that go shoot at each other with these things all the time. Right? Or paintball marker guns. We call them markers now because they don't want to call them guns. Look, there's a point where you gotta say, if you're gonna be a big boy and wear your big boy pants, you know the difference between things. Now, <clears throat> I do think there could be some dangers around things like airsoft guns and pellet guns with confusion by third parties. And that's why we have to be completely clear about what we do and what we don't do and where we do it and where we don't do it. Um I wouldn't run around having a, a air air pistol war with Patrick Roman on the side of a highway. Okay? But I would do it in my backyard. Okay? Especially if he wanted to engage in it. We didn't actually do that. It's just a for instance. And again, if I'm to a point where my kids can't understand that difference, or any young person I'm mentoring when it comes to anything can't understand We're not going to firearms. We're not going to BB guns. We're probably not going to airsoft. Because I'm going to say that, you know, if if kids are doing this, then they should wear protective gear and things like that. Really, we should, too. Um, but it was minimized, and that's why we did it. Um, but then Billy should know that if him and his buddy Tommy want to play airsoft guns and shoot at each other. That, that Tommy needs to give his consent, and Tommy's mom or and dad need to be okay with it. And if, if that line is blurry, let alone the difference between how we treat an airsoft gun and how we treat a, a real gun, then then we're not getting an airsoft gun, let alone a real gun. And then, if you can't handle getting shot by an orange Nerf gun that shoots a dart, don't come to my house. Because if you're that person, and I know you're coming to my house, I'm probably going to go order one off Amazon... Just to shoot you when you get here so you'll leave. Like, right? Because this is fun stuff that kids do. My kid grew up with it. I grew up with it. Um, I don't think it's as big a deal as it might have even been though back when you were a kid because I don't think toy guns are what they were 25 years ago. When I was a kid, we all had toy guns and lots of them. Little fake M16s, you pull the trigger and they went like, rat at that at that, you know, stuff like that, cap guns and stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that really is as much a thing anymore. If you're gonna get rid of twig, does that mean we don't play, um, you know, not only do we not play airsoft or paintball, we don't also play laser tag? Should we tell the kid it's not okay for him and his friends to play cowboys and Indians if kids still do that anymore and point their finger and say bang? See, as I'm saying, if you can't understand the difference between the classes of things that look like and or are guns, then you're not ready for anything that actually has anything that comes out the end of it. So I, I think it's a sentiment thing with its heart in the right place, but it's logically flawed. You know, well, you muzzled them with an airsoft gun. Well, I was shooting at his ass. You know, I, I, I think that, like, we need to get a little bit more in touch with effing reality on this stuff. Those are my thoughts. Now, if you want to do it totally differently... Your kids, hell with your kids, your house, your rules. And, you know, I wouldn't violate your rules in your home. And if my rules in my home were to make you uncomfortable, I might invite you to leave, or I might accommodate you. It depends on the situation. Just my thoughts. Let's take another one. This one, oddly, firearms related on red, red flag laws.
1: Yeah, Jack, this is Bob and Lano. I uh, just wanted to call and ask you to comment on the New uh, so-called red flag laws that are being passed and have been passed in about a dozen or so states in which a relative or other person, I'm not sure who, what the qualifications are, but they can call the police and tell them that you are a threat, that you are their concern for safety, and then the police can just come and confiscate your guns. Um, It's my understanding that a gentleman in New Jersey was actually killed as a result of this police action. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Have a great day, Jack, and Merry Christmas and Happy New
0: Year. Bye. So let's let's do some temperance here before we even examine the issue on the incident that occurred. So the way this is being reported is some honest legal gun owner was minding his own business in his house. Police got a red flag call on him to go take his gun away. Went to take his gun away. He said no, and they shot him. Um, that, that's beyond yellow journalism. Some places where it's actually kind of being at least insinuated that way with a headline, even if the accurate, uh, accurate reporting is done in the article in the sub subtext. Uh, but what actually happened is police in Maryland did get a red, uh, red flag call on this guy. They went to his house. He answered the door with the gun in his hand. Now look... <laughs> If you had police come to your house, you don't answer the door with a gun in your hand if you have common sense. You know, maybe this shows us there was some mental instability there. The reports I'd read at the time, because I have not followed up on this. At the time they weren't even sure who called. Okay? Which is a problem we'll get to in just a second. They they, they, they talked to him. He put the gun down like on a uh, you know, like an entry stand, like a nightstand, key stand or something like that. And was talking to him, and then they said, well, we're going to have to take your gun. And he grabbed the gun, and a struggle ensued, and they shot him. If you want a textbook way to get your ass shot by the police, and I'm not sticking up for the police. I'm just saying, common sense, you don't do that. And I got to, you know, whether I want it to be true or not, you go where facts lead when you do investigative journalism. And there's at least some possibility that a person that behaves that way indeed was a concern to people around him who knew that he also owned guns. It's at least possible. Now let's talk about why I think these laws are wholly unnecessary. The concept here, Billy Bob is really down in the dirt about his his girlfriend Samantha Bob running off with Willie Bob, and he's mumbling things, and he's got his gun, and he might do a Bubba shot at the jukebox, or he might do a, 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 you know, Billy Bob shot Willie Bob, or shoot himself, or shoot all you know, shoot the other two. And then, we don't really know, but we just know Billy Bob is not looking good here. So we feel, by that assessment, that Billy Bob may be a danger to himself and others. So Susie Bob picks up the phone and calls the sheriff, Tommy Bob, and says, I'm so worried about Billy Bob. I think he might, he might hurt somebody. He's got that big old Colt forty-five, and I don't know what to do. So the sheriff, being a, a man that enforces the law, as it's written, not one that writes it, and being seriously concerned, either he himself or sends his deputies or whatever, and they go out to Billy Bob, and they say, Billy Bob, we have to take your gun away. And Billy Bob says, why? And they say, well, you can apply to get it back, but there's been a call that says there's something wrong and that you might be a danger to yourself and others. And, well, therefore, we're just going to take your gun until we make sure everything's okay. And when you explain it, maybe not so facetiously as I just did, but if you explain it to the average rational thinking person, and I believe even the Second Amendment advocate, if they will take their emotional connection to the Second Amendment and gun rights Out of the equation, it seems to make sense. It doesn't. And this is why. Let's say that I am Billy Bob's cousin, Jack Bob, and I think Billy Bob is a danger to himself and or others. But Billy Bob doesn't have a gun. But he's got a big old big rig. And he might get in that and do a Papa Loves Mama from Garth Brooks and go through a hotel, you know, wall. Or he's just a really big guy. And he might go get Willie Bob by the throat and just smash his head against the wall. Or he's so depressed he might just climb up one of them telephone poles with those, uh, those spikes he has for climbing trees and then jump off and kill himself. For all I know, he could slit his wrists and then lay in a, in a bathtub. I mean, there something's. See, it's the same. Is it not the same problem? Is it not the same problem? He might hurt himself or somebody else. We already have laws that cover this. If law enforcement gets that call, Billy Bob is he just seemed like man? Seems like he's going to hurt somebody or hurt some, hurt himself. Well, law enforcement will go talk to Billy Bob. And they will make a field level assessment of whether or not Billy Bob needs a further psychological evaluation, and if they have enough of a reason by talking to Billy Bob to believe that he is in fact a danger to himself and others, they will use force and take him into custody and require him to go through an exam. The difference is no one's going to go take his his leggings for climbing or his truck or, you know, any other property from him. During that assessment, after that assessment, they'll either say, Yeah, oh boy, it's a good thing we did this. Billy Bob's on the verge of taking out an entire McDonald's with a truck. Or they'll say, There's, he's sad, but there's nothing wrong with him. This man presents no danger to himself or others. And they'll let him go. Now, I don't like anybody's being liberty, especially their liberty of movement and freedom to be infringed upon. But what we've done is we've created a facade that there's reason to believe this person could be a danger to himself and or others. So there's reason to take his gun, but the very assessment we ask law enforcement to make about whether or not this individual requires, you know, either we want you to voluntarily go, or frankly we're going to take your ass to the third floor of the hospital and have you checked out, Um, they don't have to make it with the guns. You get a call, you take the guns. This is this is not right. This is, in my opinion, eventually this will fall at court level challenges and be ruled unconstitutional. Because and mainly because we already have a process for this. Well, what if somebody would have called and said that about the guy that shot up the schools in Florida? Let's talk about the logical f- flaws with this 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 concept. So. Um, Billy Bob is now a 19-year-old kid that's been picked on at school. He's got an AR-15. He's going to walk into school and shoot everybody that hurt him and everybody that's there that he can until uh, he either commits suicide by cop or loses his nerve and surrenders. That's his plan. You go visit Billy Bob, and you take his gun away. But Billy Bob is still free to walk the street. You now have a person that you've said by your actions is potentially a danger to himself and others, and his only incentive to voluntarily be evaluated is to get his property back, as though there's no other way that he can carry out his desire to harm himself and or others. It doesn't make any sense. Now, if we did not have the ability at all to make a determination that this person seems irrational and there seems to be something wrong here, and they need to be evaluated, you might be able to constitutionally, this is not my opinion now, this is this is about law, make the case that, well, we need a way to at least take away their main means of executing this plan. But since you do have a way to say, listen, something's wrong, we're not sure, but we have, based on my conversation with you, Billy Bob, Mr. Bob, I think that you need to be evaluated, and we would very much like you to voluntarily go with us. And if not, they can get a court order or whatever, and they can force Billy Bob to have his head checked out. The problem here is, is on top of everything I just said, is it basically puts no limitations on who can make a phone call. So I'm a pissed off, separated wife pending divorce. And I know Billy Bob has guns. Oh, sheriff! I swear to God, Billy Bob. He says he's gonna kill me. He says he's gonna kill himself. He's gonna kill the kids. Now with this law in place, that sheriff has no discretion. He has to go take Billy Bob's guns, and then Susan Bob is gonna go to the judge during the divorce proceedings and say it's so bad they had to take his guns away. This is this is effed up. This is akin to somebody being able to make a phone call and say. I think Billy Bob's a terrorist. Put him on the terror watch list. He has to prove he isn't to get off it so he can fly on an airplane. This this is unconstitutional and wrong, but not for the reasons that the right is going nuts about it. No one is doing a logical evaluation of this, which is typical. Everybody reacts on emotion. Those are my thoughts. I'm sure I'll be told how wrong I am. Anyway, let's take another one.
1: Hey, Jack, this is Dylan, Angus Bangus. Uh, Just a quick question. Do you have a recommendation on things to keep fermenters warm when they're brewing inside as it starts to get colder? the house is 68, how do you keep that thing up at 75? Thanks.
0: So I am going to tell you some ways to do this um, to keep the speed of your ferment up, et cetera. Uh, But I'm going to start out with, well, should you even bother? Um, What I would suggest is that we tailor our brewing – to brew things that do best being brewed and fermented at the temperatures that are normally going on in our home. Uh, you know, 65, 66 degrees isn't exactly lager temperatures. Um, but it, you know, if you wanted to make something akin to a lager, if you're doing beer, uh, it, you know, it's a kind of a good time of year to do that. Uh, you'll, you'll get pretty good results even with a lager yeast at that kind of a temperature. You won't be making an anchor steam beer. Oh, the other thing is that most yeasts actually produce less estuary flavors and things like that at, l- at their lower end of their temperature um, activity, like where they will work but they're not at the upper limit of where they should be, or they're not at their optimum speed. This is why lager beers are so smooth. It's not because it's Beechwood aged, because Beechwood doesn't do shit. It's really a marketing gimmick I won't get into today. But Beechwood does nothing for you Budweiser drinkers, by the way. That's why they use it, because it doesn't do anything. Um, so uh, when, you, when you're when you lagering, you're, you're, you're fermenting and then aging at very low temperatures, and therefore, the yeast produce almost no byproducts in esters and flavors and aftertaste. You get a very smooth beer, and what you're tasting is the the product that was fermented in the result, and that's it. And you're get not it, but you're getting a lot less of the yeast contribution. So you make generally cleaner ferments at lower temperatures, and most of the yeast that we use for things like ciders and 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 what have you, they'll ferment just fine in the 60s. Now you got to check the specs for your yeast, and what it'll say optimum, but it'll also tell you like what temperature this yeast is just going to die at, uh, because it's too hot, and what temperature this yeast is going to go to sleep at because it's too cold. And as long as you're not like toward the edge of either one of them, so your ferment takes six weeks instead of four. So who cares? Like just let it be what it is, because that's I always at least know. The simplest solution first. Okay, next up, though, where is the warmest place in your home? Well, your kitchen. Well, maybe. But that, that your fermenter can go and not be a problem. So what I suggest doing, if you don't have one, because there's just so many other things you can do with it, get yourself one of the little etech City laser thermometer guns. I use mine all the time. I have one that's on the back of my office door I keep all my fish tank stuff, and, you know, if I'm ever working on my tanks and I'm wondering, like, is that a little cold? Is that a little hot? The fish are acting. Pick it up, boom, and I know the temperature of the water, like that fast. So you can take one of those or whatever you have, or maybe even a little standalone thermometer if you want to wait, and go around your house and just think of different places you could put your fermenter where it would be okay and out of the way and not get you yelled at. And see what the temperatures are. Because you might find, oh, I don't know, that in one of your bathrooms – you have a kind of a closet area that's really not for closet stuff, and inside there's a water heater, and you might find that the temperature in there with the door closed is four or five degrees warmer than the rest of the house. Well, if there's room in there for your fermenter, you just might set your fermenters in there. So that would be the next thing. I'd say, like, do you have a place in your home already where it's warmer? And those that want to ferment at lower temperatures, I would say the same. Now you go look for your cold spots. Where you're, like, cause you can, you can go in the summer and be like, well, friggin' life's always cold and trying to keep the electric bill down and it's friggin' 80 degrees in the house. Well, I'm not coming to your house, but yeah, maybe it's a little high for some of the ferments you want to do, so let's find a cool spot. You know, and you might find that the closet under the stairs is a cool spot. Just saying, right? Maybe it is, maybe it, but check with the thermometer. Now, the other option, they actually make like these basically like, brewing belts to, to wrap around like five-gallon carboys and stuff like that. And you go to any home brew supply and they sell stuff like that. And if you just look up that kind of stuff, you'll see all different kinds of concoctions and ways they do that. Um another way to do this though would be to use uh either the heating pads that they use for heating plants uh, or reptile heating pads and and you know build a stand and Put that under there in the area the fermenter's going to sit in, check it with your gun, and that would be another way to do it. Probably the easiest thing to do, as long as you got the space for it, is get yourself a larger container that's that's watertight that'll hold water. And, of course, since your fermenter's full, it's not going to float. It's going to sink. And let's say you have, like, a wash tub and a five-gallon carboy. Take your carboy, stick it in your five-gallon wash tub, and fill it with enough water That, you know, it comes up, let's say, a third, 25% of the way, anyway, of the depth of the carboy. Take a standard aquarium heater and heat the water to about 2 degrees to 3 degrees warmer than you want the temperature of the liquid in the carboy, because it will never come up to exactly the same temperature. But it might, so check it with your laser gun. And so that would be the the, 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 just, you know, thinking about stuff that's easy to get, that's cheap. Because one of these delt heaters or whatever, you know, I mean, most people have something that they can put liquid in. And if you're doing the one-gallon quick ferment you know, you could use like a Rubbermaid tub and have four or five of those suckers in there. And I can tell you flat out, you can put an aquarium heater in a Rubbermaid tub and it will not burn a hole through the Rubbermaid tub because I just had a whole bunch of cichlid fish in a Rubbermaid tub on my floor for like five weeks because the tank blew out on me. Uh, now, you might not want to put... You never do this anyway. You won't want to put the heater element itself up against the plastic. Usually, they have suction cups, and those will suction cup to the side, and then that kind of holds it off. But you can do whatever you need to do. Just don't... I would not, just as a safety precaution... Put the actual heater element directly against the Rubbermaid tub. I wouldn't hurt one bit to put it against a, a glass carboy. But that'll that'll do whatever you need to do, and it's easy. And it's it's you know you can get a, um, a, a you know you're probably looking at something like a hundred and fifty watt aquarium heater. hundred to hundred fifty watts is probably what you're going to need to do this. Um, and, and you're looking at like twenty five thirty bucks, and you have a water heater that can be used in other ways. Uh, maybe one day you get into the hobby of keeping fish. Who knows? Maybe you keep fish, you have an extra heater laying around. Most of us that do, if you keep fish and you don't have an extra heater laying around, you're wrong. Because you're going to come in one day and the fish are going to be kind of lethargic. And you, Oh, two is one, one is none, and now I have none. So, you know, just trying to think of how you can use what you have. Those are the three approaches that I would take. As far as the E-Take City little laser grip gun, uh, I have a link in the show notes where you can see that thing. It's one of the best investments I've ever made in Homestead Tools. Let's take another one.
1: Hey Jack, this is Sean in Tennessee. And I had a question about using venison bones for bone stock. Specifically, if one were to go to their local um supplier of uh venison bones, you know, if I take a deer or a processor, I don't have it ground up, they're not grinding the bones up. So the thought process is if I could get those bones for free or close to it, uh, could I turn those into a venison stock? Uh, would you be afraid of, uh, of using that kind of source for that? And uh, just want to hear your thoughts. And, and if you think it's a good idea, uh, you got a good recipe for
0: venison stock. Thanks. So the caller didn't mention chronic wasting disease, but it's where I'm going to start because it's where all the dad gone hysteria about bones and marrow and things like that. Have come from um, with wild game, specifically venison, elk, etc. Um, chronic wasting disease is caused by prions uh, that are uh, very unknown. We really don't completely understand what they are, but they basically turn the brain into a sponge, and not in a good way. That wants knowledge and cause neurological problems, and, and they are uh, 100% fatal. Uh, and, and this is also known in in the world of, of bovine as mad cow disease. And it's, I can't remember the name, it sounds like two people's names put together, something-something disease. It's killed like 140 people in the whole world out of billions and billions and billions of people that have been, you know, infected with it from consuming infected beef. And this resulted in where they euthanized thousands and thousands of cattle in the U.K. a few years ago and things like that. So that's what people are afraid of. And what people say is, well, you know, since it's a neural disease that infects the brain, then obviously all the risk is in things like spinal tissue and brain tissue and bone marrow, et cetera. Wah, wah, wrong answer. Wrong answer. Um, an animal that's heavily affected with, with, with let's say, mad cow disease can transmit these prions to human beings, and it can be done in the meat. And this is why people go, I cook my meat too well done, because of stuff like this. Unless you cook your meat to 600 freaking degrees, it don't matter. Because cooking temperatures do not kill these things, whatever the hell they actually are. Again, we don't really understand them. So, if you're eating meat, specifically cattle then you have a very remote chance of becoming infected with a disease that's killed a whopping hundred and forty people out of like, you know, whatever the nine nine billion or whatever it is people in the world. This is not enough to make me turn down my hamburgers or stop making bone stock out of out, out of cattle bones. Right? It's not. The the total number of people who have ever been infected with, with the the prions from chronic wasting disease that you can get from uh, you know, deer and, and elk and what have you is zero. Never happened. Now, a hell of a lot more people eat cow than eat wild shot deer. So, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying the studies done so far, um, scientists are like, well, they have, the mice have similar DNA. So they, they fed these mice with the uh, infected, uh, tissue. An ass load infected, by the way. And the mice got the disease. Uh, They they said, well, you know, something a little more like humans, and they did it with squirrel monkeys. And the squirrel monkeys got the disease. Now, again, these are very elevated levels compared to what you would expect unless you literally cracked the brain of a deer open and just started chawing down on it, Uh, you know, and that uh, flat-out infected. Now, when they, they got a little tighter with the squirrel monkeys, and they gave them tissue from an asymptomatic animal, this is where it gets a little scary. Asymptomatic means it had a disease but wasn't showing any signs yet. So then they're like, oh, shit. Well, a squirrel monkey got this from a deer that you would normally look at and say it's okay to eat, but it didn't get it from eating brain tissue. It got it from eating the meat. So then they went to another primate called macabre. This is a little bit more advanced primate species than a squirrel monkey, moving closer to you know chimps, humans, right, et cetera. And, and they were unable to get a macabre to get... This disease, they just kept feeding it to him. And then, okay, I'll eat some more, please. Thank you. So I think that you have a, with all the information I have, you have a greater risk, no matter what you're eating as an animal product, from beef, from mainstream, factory, farmed, USDA, grade A, blah, 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 inspected beef, uh, which is, again, very, very low than you do from shooting a deer and eating the meat off it. Now, obviously, any animal that I saw with any kind of disease or problem, I'm not going to eat it because, good God, you don't even know what it is. Uh, so, But I'm not concerned about that at all. So that's just a thing that I think might be at play here. And I know a lot of people in this audience, you need know, to either hunt or you want to learn to hunt, and there's a lot of scare tactics around this. And guys, tell, I'm telling you, the main source of this misinformation and FUD is PETA. right, that's the the freaking animal rights morons, and they don't want you to eat meat, and they'll use anything they can to try to scare you away from it. I saw a thing the other day on on Facebook where this one PETA group is running around, and they have these stickers that says, like, my name was Charlie, and I didn't want to die. Please don't eat me, and they're sticking them on, like, steaks, like packages in in, in grocery stores. And one guy commented and said, I think I'd keep sorting through them and see if I could find one with my name on it like you do with Coke. (laughs) That was funny, but that's where a lot of this is coming from. The animal rights, don't eat meat, whatever, bullshit. Now, venison bone stock, I love it. I always make it. Um, Most kind of backwoods deer hunters like me, if we don't make bone stock out of the bones from our deer, we feed them to our dogs. There has not been a case of chronic wasting disease being transmitted to a canine. It's kind of a higher life form, less than it seems to do. It seems more generated toward the animals it actually infects. Um, <laughs> so, again, not really worried. But my point is, we don't have a bunch of people popping up with us. We don't have one. We don't have a dog popping up with it. All right? And, again, if you were afraid to eat the bone, you should be afraid to eat the steak because it can be anywhere in the creature. All right? Okay, so my only concern with your source, a friend that's a butcher or a processor, is you know, if you ask me, said yeah, I got a bunch of bones and they're just laying over there and how long were they laying there? And is there any kind of concerns, you know, for for storage and temperature that you would normally assign to meat or animal products? Um, so I would take more of the approach of I don't want the stuff you have laid around. Uh, I would like, you know, a certain amount. Because you, if you ask a processor to give you all the bones they can get, you're going to make more stock than you know what to do with. Um, and I'm assuming you don't want to do this commercially or anything, because that's out. You can't do that with wild game. It's just, when you see, like, you know, venison sausage, that's from, like, a, a, a New Zealand red deer that was raised on a farm. It's not, you, you can't sell wild game in any state that I'm aware of. Um, someplace you can get a commercial fishing license, but, game just no uh so i'm assuming for home use just, you know how much you want and please you know treat it like you would steak you know, freeze throw the bones in the freezer for me or whatever and yeah how i make my bone stock from venison i throw them in the oven at like 425 degrees until they turn brown uh and then i just make stock like you always make stock uh if you have a friend who really is a friend uh it would be nice if he took those big femurs and what have you and kind of zip them with his bandsaw into two or three pieces so you open the marrow up and stuff like that and make that extraction easier. But yeah, I, I have no qualms with it at all, and I have no real concerns about chronic wasting disease. If we learn more and there, you can give me a credible reason to be worried about it, then I'll worry about it. But you know, I'm not going to ruin my steak or ruin my venison steak by cooking it to 160 degrees trying to kill a prion that survives up to like 599 degrees. That's just not smart. Uh, let's take another one.
1: Hey, Jack. It's Dan, one of your Southern Alberta listeners. I'm looking at moving to a new property, possibly with two to five acres, just trying to figure out with the wife what's the best way to to uh, provide for ourselves with meat and possibly a side hustle looking at either goats or or sheep or possibly miniature cows. Just thought I'd uh, bounce this thought off you and and see what you thought. Uh, We also run a a dog breeding business of Old English Bulldogs. We have three dogs, so um, that would also take up some space. Just curious to see what you would think. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you for
0: all you do. Bye. Okay, so let's, let's number one, let's nix the miniature cattle. Just forget about it for meat production. Side hustle is a different thing. You're selling animals to people and yuppies buy shit all the time that they shouldn't so you can make money off of that just about any critter um but miniature cattle and we just had Darby Simpson last you know, end of end of the year uh do a call on miniature cattle they're just not a good meat yield um nothing wrong with them they're just it's a poor yield for what you put into them versus what you get out of them uh if you wanted to do cattle you know i would say you know that's something like getting a dairy cow and having her inseminated and raising up one young one a year or something like that or every other year every year and a half uh usually takes about 18 months to finish out beef cow um maybe but probably not uh i would kind of nix that all together goats i'm not i'm not the person to ask i have a a a complete and total hatred for goats um if they're gonna be on my property somebody else wants i love to eat goat I mean, I do, but I hate goats as animals. They're just, I just don't like them. They stink. They can get out of damn near anything. They screw stuff up. They're kind of assholes. Sheep, love me some lamb. Um, personally though, I don't like having a shearing animal. And unless you have someone locally that's going to take care of that for you, it can be an issue. You can have issues with something called fly strike if they get too wet during the, the, the months where they have their full fleece on. Um, there's some issues there, but I would go with them before I would go with goats. For meat production, for you, your family, I would start with rabbits, most likely. Um, You can certainly set up enough protection without spending a lot of money for them to be able to survive your winters. Um, You know, three does and a buck in a rabbitry tree. Um, can produce as much meat as you get off a cow every year. I'm dead serious. It's high-quality protein. Uh, it's easy to process. I mean, processing even a miniature cow is a lot of work. It's a lot of storage space. Everything that you do not use from a rabbit can be fed to those bulldogs. Um, and if you pick the right breeds, then selling a bunny or a pair of them to someone who wants to do their own rabbitry will make you more money than you'd ever make from selling the meat. So it's where I'd start. Uh, The other place I would look to is pastured poultry. And what I love about pastured poultry, especially if it's a new homestead, I assume you're new homesteaders, I like work that comes and goes away. Okay, And then you can sit back and you're not committed to it long term now. You go, well, that was fun, and I think we got a really good return on that, and I want to do that again next fall or next year or next spring or whatever. So you, you get past your poultry. You build yourself a chicken tractor. You can do something with that thing, even if you never raise a chicken again. You get yourself 20, 15, 25, whatever you think you want to start out with, Cornish Crosses. You brood them for three weeks. You throw them in there for four or five weeks. They, they grow up to graduation size. You either process them yourself or you find a local processor. You put 15, 20, 25 birds in the freezer. Unlike a lot of other things, you probably won't feel a lot of heartache, and it won't be hard to give away. You know, say you, you buy 25 chicks because you're like, well, we're going to lose some, and you lose one, you got 24, and you realize how much meat 24 full-size chickens is, and they won't all fit in freezer camp. So giving that away, it's not going to be a problem. You make friends. Maybe you even then, you give away, you know, you raise 25. Let's say you buy 30, you end up with 25 getting processed. You give away 10, you keep 15. You give away 10 to five different people that you think might make good potential customers for just a little bit. And then you're able to go back to them and say, hey, I could raise 50 of these. Would you want 10? Here's how much it would cost me for to raise 10 birds for you. Don't even quote them a price by the pound. Figure out your numbers for the bird, and then their birds are just 10 randomly selected birds from the group. They're going to get some big ones, and they're going to get some little ones. And now you've got kind of a little co-op thing, you know, going on. I'll do 50% when I buy the birds and the feed, and 50% when we get to graduation day. Now, instead of a side hustle that's trying to make you money, what you want to be able to do is produce your 15 to 20 birds for free. Now you're golden. And again, you got, unlike even the rabbits. Now, of course, you can control the breeding. So you know when you're getting kits and stuff like rabbits. And there's parts of the year where you can just kind of automate everything and you don't have any bunnies to deal with or anything like that. But with the chickens, chickens come somewhere between... 10 to 12 weeks after you get them, you're done for the year unless you want to do more. That's a great first place to go. So that's where I would look. The other animal that I think is a fantastic and underrated meat animal is Courtney's quail because you get eggs and you get meat. You can process birds at about 5 to 6 weeks of age. That's when they're the most tender. You can process a bird in freaking 30 to 45 seconds with no tools with your bare hands. And it's one of those things where, let's say, we get ourselves a dozen quail, we raise them up to egg laying age, we have a few males, they start, you know, we start going ahead and doing some brooding, we're producing some meat quail, we decide we hate quail. Okay. Then cull, with big air quotes, because you're done forever, right? You cull your adults and you're done. In, in, In 25 minutes, you can process those 12 quail. They're going to be older birds. You're going to have to stew them a little bit or whatever, slow cook them to keep them tender, but you're done. And it's a low initial investment. So I would start out with your first meat production either being poultry, uh, let's just say chickens, rabbits, or quail. Get your feet wet with it. And then think about whether you want to bring, in. you know, think, I would think about this. If I'm going to bring sheep or goats on the property, I'm not doing it for meat. I'm doing it because I want to improve and manage my land with ruminants. And then meat is a byproduct thereof. So I want to make that sheep do, do enough work that I don't need a tractor to mow that pasture. And that pasture gets better every year. Now I have a reason to have that sheep. And if I have the neighbor's ram come over and breed my sheep, and she, you know, Double double produces and gives me twins, and I have two lambs that year. Then I have free lamb. Um, if you want to get into, you know, you know, specific gre- breeds of sheep or goats and selling them and making money on them, you can do it. Some people are successful at it, but I've, I've most small producers. What I've heard is that they're happy to break even and get their stuff for free. And with goats, you can be looking at a very significant infrastructure uh, investment. Uh, I did have Nick Ferguson on uh, a few years ago about goats, and it was the show was called something like How to Own Goats Without Hating Your Life. I decided I would still hate my life, so I didn't want them. Um, but it would be a good resource if you want to go down that road. I don't know how well what they call hair sheep work up north with you. We have a sheep that's really popular here in Texas called Dorper sheep. Uh, they make fantastic lamb and every year they just basically shed their fleece so they're useless for wool but you don't have to do any work and they're incredibly resilient uh, they're, they're a sheep that's as resilient as a goat but can't climb a fence uh, that, and they have a tendency to uh, to have two or even three lambs uh, per cycle uh, which is really really nice as well so you might look into those but I don't know about temperature wise there but, man, I'm saying start small, get your feet wet, make sure this makes sense for you, and be be clever with what you're doing. Um, you know, look around. Who's selling goats? Who's selling lambs? Who's selling sheep? How many are they selling? Because a lot of them, well, they're selling lambs for X dollars. Well, how many are they selling? Do they have any they can't sell? Do they have any available rate? If they have any available, immediately, you go, oh, yeah, we've got plenty of them. Well, they're not. Selling a lot of them, then. You know, so... I that's my thoughts. Let's take another one.
1: Hey, Jack. John from Indiana.
0: 12-gauge um, shotgun mini-shells.
1: Are they good for anything? Just wondering what your thoughts were.
0: Thanks. So, when I, when I first heard this call, I'm like, well, that's going to be a really short response because the answer is no next question. And, they're, and I realize it's the last question they show me. I should move it up. And th- the answer is really not that simple. So... Are they good for anything? Well, um, they're good for their intended purpose. Their intended purpose, and there didn't used to be them, right? This is a relatively new thing, was to increase capacity for tactical and home defense shotguns. And to accept the fact that, well, they were still damn lethal. So you go from having like twelve pellets of double O buck to having like five. Uh well let's face it, at the range of a home defense situation or tactical entry or something like that, you're still dead if you get shot with it. You're way deader than you are if somebody shot you with a nine millimeter. Um shotgun is a life ender or a limb remover and or both, right? I mean, they are they're, they're there's a reason that in World War One if you were a shotgunner in the trenches and your trench got overrun and you might be taken prisoner, you threw that thing away. Because if they caught you with it, they were going to kill you immediately because of what happened with shotguns and damages uh, to, to human bodies. Uh, the shotgunners were hated on both sides. The enemy shotgunners a hated person uh, in, in World War I. Uh, so they're, they're damn deadly. So, you know... Billy Bob at Billy Bob Shotgun Shells gets the idea that, hey, we could shove a lot more of these things in here if they were shorter, and then kel comes out with something like the KSG with two magazines, and boy, now you can shove an assload of them in there. So if you are thinking of using a shotgun as a tactical defensive tool uh, at, you, you know, Typical shotgun ranges with either slugs or buck or, you know, heavy shot like BB shot over, over buck shot. Uh, it works for that. It will let you put more of them in the tube. And that's that's what they're good for, to be able to put more in the tube. They are not they are not as powerful as they were before you shortened them. There's a reason they made them the length they were in the first place, so you can put more powder and a bigger payload in there. All right? So... but again at the ranges we're talking about i don't want to get shot with them you know i don't want to get a shot with a 22 now the other thing i've heard is well you can get them with birdshot and then they're lower recoil for a younger shooter well you know that's all handled with how much powder and how much payload there is and we can reduce recoil by just buying a a light field load in the first place, and if that's still a problem, then our shooter should be shooting a 20-gauge instead of a 12-gauge. So I don't think they're very practical, and I'll tell you why I don't think they're practical, even for their intended purpose. I've never heard of a home invasion scenario where the person that was defending their home with a shotgun ran out of ammunition in the shotgun. I, I mean, I, now, don't get me wrong. If you want to put a 100-round f- drum on a freaking... Uh, you know, one of those, uh, who makes them, I can't think of now, but the SKS, basically, SKH, SKS version of the shotgun. And somehow you want to build a 100-round drum for it, whatever you want to do. I'm not, I'm not saying there's any, any reason you shouldn't be able to. I'm just saying it doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, when you look at an extended magazine on a typical tactical shotgun, you can you can put as much ammo in there as you want, I guess. In competitive shooting, if it was allowed, then it would have an advantage because you have more shots, but then everybody's going to do it if it works. So then you're back to being, you know, like a stock car race where everybody's running the same car type situation. So I, I don't really, again, I just do what you want, but I'm not going to spend any money on them. Uh, that's that's as simple as I can make it. With that, we've wrapped up another show. hope you enjoyed it. If you did, remember one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do is simply to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Now, if you go to tspaz.com, you'll see all the reviews that I've ever done uh, on Amazon. And Remember, if it's there, I own it. I use it. It's in my home. I spent my money on it, or I would not recommend that you spend your money on it. And then I'm going to turn around and give you a product today I've never bought. <laughs> so, am I breaking my word to you? No, number one, because I'm telling you. Uh, number two, because I, I, I own and have owned dozens of the, this little guy's big brother. Uh, I've talked about the Streamlight Stylus Pro since before there was a T-SPAS. When I just like, way back in the beginning of the show, 10 years ago, like, you know, when we talk about EDC, I'm like, well, I carry a Steam- Streamlight Stylus Pro sh- uh, flashlight because it's inexpensive and it works really good. Uh, and it's reliable. And everybody I know that has one loves it. Um, So I've recommended that product for years, sold hundreds and hundreds of them. And when I recommended it back in December, uh, Nicole Sauce from the expert council said, I I, I prefer a little short one with the CR123A batteries because, and let me get her quote exactly right. She said, I like the one that takes only the CR123 battery because it's shorter and clips inside the lame-ass non-pockets they put in girl jeans without the risk of falling out. Now I've always recommended the Stylus Pro over the short version, the, the, the Micro Stream, because two batteries. Either we use it on high power, we get the same uh, amount of battery life with more light. We use it on a lower power, and we get double the battery life with the same light as the smaller light, right? So, like I, and, and the light is so slim because it uses double or uh, triple A's. You slide it in your back pocket, clip it over the outside, and it just kind of sits in that seam down the that seam that's on the side of your your pant leg, and you don't even know it's there. You forget it's there until you need it. But I didn't know there was a such thing as lame ass non pockets and girls. I didn't know that was a thing because I don't wear girl jeans. Um, and then I got to thinking about it. So there, you know there could be some other options. There are other reasons people want a smaller light. So I checked, and the Microstream has a great reputation, as good as the Stylus Pro. Um, it is plenty bright enough, and it uses standard AAA batteries. So I recommend that. Now, I actually have a link uh, to the O-Lite, uh, O-Lite's uh, AAA uh, light. Uh, they have a single AAA light. It's really good, and it's a lot brighter. The difference is you go from full power being 2 hours and 25 minutes of power, like the Streamlight, to being 20 minutes. And the low power setting on that light is 5 lumens. So it's about as bright as your cell phone and not the flashlight part of your cell phone. Like when you just turn your cell phone screen on and use it, yeah, that's about 5 lumens. Uh, So it's okay for what it is, but I prefer the Streamlight because I've recommended it for so long, etc. But let's talk about the AA, AAA battery thing over the CR123s. I believe in standardization wherever it makes sense and specialization only where necessary. For instance, my plumbing on my property for my PVC pipe, uh, there's some legacy three-quarter that was here when I got here, and it's not worth tearing out. But basically everything that's been put in is either one-inch or half-inch. Because that way I can buy all the standard one-inch fittings, all the standard half-inch fittings, make sure I have some valves and some end caps, and anything that goes wrong I can fix it, or at least I can patch it until I can fix it right. And if I have some you know, one-inch to half-inch adapters... I can make anything happen. And that's, that, I'll pick that up in the military, be standardized. CR-123s, they do have more capacity, they can run a brighter light for longer. If you really need that, okay. But, I bet you, wherever you are right now, especially your home, there is a AAA battery somewhere within 15 yards of where you're sitting right now, and there may not be a CR-123 unless you're a CR-123 guy. And if you go to your friend's house, there's one you can find, borrow, or loot. Well, and I don't care if it comes out of a remote control. And then standardized. So, what what batteries does your TV remote use? What, you know what I'm saying? That. So I like to use. What what do your yard lights use? And the way I look, we talk about shotguns today. Double A AA and triple A. If we compare them to shotgun shells, are 12 gauge and 20 gauge. You can beg, borrow, or steal them from somewhere all the time. CR-123s are like a 28-gauge. Really great for the specialized needs that you have for them, but otherwise they're overpriced and hard to find. That, that's how I look at it. So I like going standardized. That's why I recommend that you do that. So you can check out my review. And, uh, again, I really recommend Streamlight have for so many years. And for 18 bucks, it's just a great light. And, ladies, I, I'm sorry that I did not re- – for all these years I have not recommended a product – when it comes to an EDC light that, you know, works for your lame-ass, no, your, your stupid-ass, lame-ass, lame, I'm, I'm going to read it from call again. Lame-ass, ass with ED, lame-ass non-pockets they put in girl jeans. Didn't know that was a problem. Uh, Jason on Facebook said he thinks there's a fortune waiting for the first clothing manufacturer that puts regular pockets in, in, in female attire. And it just has the least amount of fitting in with basic fashion. And and just call the, call the damn thing pockets. And I responded with, and the other thing that I would do if I were in women's fashion, I would make jeans for women that are sized like jeans for men. You know, I, if you're a guy, you know what your waist size is and your length is? You go to a grid at the store. 38, 32. Boom. Those are mine. Do you try them on? Nope. Don't need to. That's my waist and length. The The fact that people think there could be a 5-foot, 2-inch woman and a 5-foot, 9-inch woman of the same, quote, size, I think is idiotic. But I can't fix that, but I can give you a light that will fit in your lame-ass non-bockets they put in girl jeans. Anyway, with that, let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today, when I saw it on the list that John Adam put together for me, I'm like, how did I never play that song? It's almost like a present for me. Two of my favorite people, Martina McBride and Jimmy Buffett, together in a song called Trip Around the Sun, and it fits the show so well. Because what it's really talking about, how, you know, we celebrate as a birthday or we celebrate as a new year. It could be either one. It's just another trip around the sun. And there's a, a line in the song where one of them says, I'm going to make a resolution. And then the other one says, To never make one again. You know all the new year, new me bullshit. Just like throw that away. And 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 the big big concept of this song is there's it's the circle of influence and concern and, and all over again. There are things in your life, very limited things that you have control and you exercise control over, and you deal with that. And the rest of it, be happy that it's out of your control. Let it go. There's no point in being upset about something you cannot control. None. You control what you can. And the guy that wrote the song was asked if there were. He wrote a lot of the songs that are on this uh, this this album that Jimmy did back in 2004 with various country artists. He said they're really a standout. He said he said this one, this trip around the sun thing, because he had heard that after the, the the album came out, there was a lady who was going to drive her car off a bridge because she's just done. She's going to kill herself, take her own life. I heard this song and decided not to. And he said, I was really happy to hear that, because usually my songs have a different reaction. Um, And I think there is something freeing about this. I think probably some of the reasons people have so many problems, including that lead up to, including suicide, which obviously breaks the first rule of survival, which is wake up breathing tomorrow, Um, has a lot to do with a feeling that, The things that are bad, things that are wrong, that you should be able to do something. And, And being freed up from that and understanding, like, okay, if the thing that's bad is you keep punching people in the face, okay, you do have control over that. If the thing that's wrong is some people don't like you, you don't have control over that. Now, maybe you're a dick. But even if you're a dick, trust me, you can go find people that like you. Go find those people. Don't worry about those other people. But when it comes to like the things you hear about on TV, on the radio, etc., you don't control that. You know, somebody asked me in the Ask Anything that we're doing. We're doing an Ask Me Anything on on Instagram. So people ask questions, and Dorothy just walks up in the morning or afternoon or whatever, points the camera at me and asks me a question, just on the spot. And I have to answer it in less than a minute because it's all Instagram gives you. Somebody asked yesterday, why? how does how does not, because I don't vote, how does not voting help? And I gave my answer. And then when I really thought about it, I, I said, I want to do it, and I'm going to have to do a video this afternoon about it in response to it, another video for Instagram. Basically, my question then is, well, how does voting help other than catharsis? since mathematically, you don't influence an election, and no one ever has. And it says, the odds are higher that you'll die in a car wreck on the way to vote then, then your vote will actually affect the outcome of the election. How are you helping by voting? I get a sticker, I guess. I mean, that, how are you helping? And I'm not saying not to vote. Don't, don't get me wrong here. What I'm saying is that's an example of feeling a responsibility because of a belief that's false, that you actually are contributing to something. Now, I, I don't think that you are. Now, if you feel that you should go do it, I, my wife votes. I don't put her down for it. But it's just a one, another way to look at things. What do you control and what do you not control? And understand, we're just all taking a ride on this big old rock around the sun. And that it's okay that we're not in control of everything. And in fact, we should be grateful for it. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or if get up. Here Hear him singing happy birthday
1: the wish I make This year gone by ain't been a piece of cake Every day's a